Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Today I will touch on a common topic among separated parents, travel with children under the age of majority, which in Ontario is 18. But first, let's set the scene with some quotes, some of my favorites about travel. According to Kikuyu Wisdom, traveling is learning. And an anonymous but wise person said that not all classrooms have four walls. Mark Twain also made a contribution on our subject matter today. He said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. I agree wholeheartedly with Mr. Twain. Travel is a wonderful, enriching, inspiring part of life, and many of us enjoy it very much, both within Canada and outside our country. I hope to return to international travel once the pandemic is more under control. We family law lawyers deal with travel-related issues fairly frequently. As a family mediator, I also tackle this issue from time to time. I help parents with dialogue about proposed trips or work with them on those parts of their parenting plan that consider future trips and logistics around them. Quite naturally, most separated parents want to enjoy traveling with their children uh, to build new memories. And I'm often approached by my clients on this issue, either because they want to take the trip themselves or because the other parent does. And at that point, we need to determine whether this will be a smooth exercise of simply filling out the travel consent form or whether there is some issue with one parent disagreeing with the idea that the other parent would travel with the kids. In the most common instance, parent A wants to take a trip with the kids and the other parent agrees. In such a case, we have the traveling parent 
provide to the other sufficient details about the trip so that the non-traveling parent knows where the children are going, where they're going to stay, and how they can be contacted while away. Clearly, the parents need to agree in advance on the duration of the trip so that the non-traveling parent can have a reasonable expectation of when the children will be back. There is also the issue of the travel consent letter. But that does not have to be complicated. And when tackled in an organized way, in solid advance of the trip, it should not be a problem at all. What am I talking about here? It is highly advisable that a separated traveling parent for the purposes of a trip with a child or children outside of Canada, obtain from the other parent confirmation in writing that the non-traveling parent knows about the trip and approves it. Essentially, these travel consent letters, as we often call them, signal to the Canadian border authorities airline agents and to foreign governments that yours is not a case of child abduction if you have the consent of the other parent in hand. Are these consents mandatory? Are they essential? Do you have to get one from the other parent? The answer is no, they're not mandatory, but I recommend them highly as do many of my colleagues, because the Canadian border authorities reserve the right to turn you and your kids around if you do not have one. And of course, we have no control at all over foreign governments and authorities. They also retain the ability to impact your trip in a way they see fit. And if you do not have the letter and they require one, you will not be allowed in. Have I had clients who traveled successfully without a consent letter? Yes. But I've also had ones who were turned around and the trip couldn't proceed to the great disappointment of the kids and the parent. But what about parents who have primary parenting responsibility, what we used to call sole custody? Do they need permission letters as well? The answer is yes. Agents at the border our border and that of another country do not know what your legal arrangements with the other parent are when it comes to the children and frankly they are not interested in getting involved in that. Their goal is to ensure that traveling children are not being abducted, in other words removed from their ordinary place of residence without the other parent's knowledge or consent. Child abduction can be local or international, and that is why countries work in cooperation with one another in addressing this very serious problem. Travel consent letters are one tool in those efforts. What about the letter itself? Does it have to be in a prescribed form? The technical answer is no. We do not have a form the border authorities expect parents to fill out, but we have important guidelines 
to maximize chances it will be accepted at the border. The letter should have details about the trip. With whom are the children traveling? Where are they going? For how long? How will they be traveling? By airplane, by train, by car, etc. Where will they be staying? How can they be contacted? So it's useful to put in an email address or phone number in the travel letter. And of course, the letter needs to be signed by the non-traveling parent. And I recommend that it be notarized as well, meaning have the additional signature and stamp of a notary public. The alternative is that it be commissioned by a commissioner for oaths and that can be a lawyer, for example. If you are interested in seeing a sample letter, one that is actually recommended by the government of Canada, I have embedded a link to one on the episode page on our website. And I will include the link in the show notes in the event you're listening on a podcast app. If you click on that, it will take you to the episode page and you will see a link to the form there. Here is a takeaway, even if you anticipate that the other parent will consent to the proposed trip. And let me clarify, here we're talking about trips within Canada and outside of Canada. And while you do not need a travel consent letter for a trip inside our country, you will still need the other parent to agree to the trip itself. Here are some point form takeaways. Number one, broach the subject with the other parent early. And by early, I mean as soon as you start thinking about the trip seriously. Give yourself and the other parent time to deal with this issue. For example, you may agree to a trip, but not to the length of the time you are planning. So there may be some more negotiations involved. Give yourself time to do that. Number two, if there is agreement, get the travel consent letter organized as soon as possible. Giving the non-traveling parent your draft consent letter two days before the trip makes no sense at all, particularly if you expect them to get it notarized or commissioned. They need to find the person to do that and make an appointment. Sometimes that is simply not possible on short notice. And there is a cost. So here's my point number three. Offer to pay for the cost of notarizing or commissioning the letter. It's the right thing to do. You are the one traveling. I promise you this will go a long way in making this process smoother and more efficient. I say you should have the signed travel consent letter in hand 10 days before the trip. So you can focus on the fun stuff and not worry about it at the last minute. Let's move to scenario number two. What about situations where 
one parent wants to travel and the other doesn't agree. If negotiations with the assistance of lawyers or even a family mediator do not help, do not resolve the problem, then you might have to involve the family court and get an actual court order that permits you to take the trip with the kids. And why might the non-traveling parent object to a trip? What are some examples of reasons parents put forward in refusing to consent? Well, there are many, many such reasons, some more compelling and in fact reasonable than others. During the pandemic, for example, many parents took the position and in fact continue to take the position that travel remains unsafe or at the very least there is an increased risk and children should not be exposed to that risk. From my perspective, there is a big difference between a parent wanting to travel to New York State versus a parent wanting to take the children to Florida where COVID-related mandates are essentially non-existent. But I realize that this is a matter of opinion and there may be many of you out there who would disagree with me on this point. Other examples of objections include the fact that children are missing school days or that uh, at the destination medical care is not reliable and a child has special medical needs which might require emergency assistance if there is a problem and that medical assistance wouldn't be available. I think you are getting the drift here. So how do family courts approach this issue? Members of the public have asked me in the past, when a separated parent wants to travel, does the court usually let them go or not? I'm going to give you an answer that frustrates many members of the public. It depends. If a parent comes to me and says, I want to take a trip during March break and my ex doesn't agree, will the court let me go? I cannot provide this parent with a response on the likelihood of their success before the court because I'm missing a lot of detail that is very, very relevant and the court would need that detail as well before making its decision. What kind of detail am I talking about? Here are the most basic questions. How old are the children? How long is the trip? Where do you propose to go? Are the children healthy? Are there any safety concerns in the region where you are proposing to travel? Is there, for example, a war waging there or civil unrest? And I'm not being facetious here, as the Canadian government issued an advisory against travel to this place. There are actually court decisions in which a judge was asked to approve a trip to an insecure part of the world and declined. Will the children have the ability to stay in touch with the non-traveling parent while they are away? If so, how often and by what method? Uh, 
What is the mode of transportation? Is the proposed trip part of the traveling parent's regular parenting schedule? Or will this trip require additional time for the traveling parent? Does this mean an adjustment to the regular or holiday schedule? What arrangements is the traveling parent proposing from makeup time, if that is the case? Again, are the children healthy? Do they have any special medical or educational needs? On the medical front, will the special care they need be available to them during the trip and at the destination? Have arrangements been made for medical care abroad? Will there be travel insurance in place? Let's talk about educational needs, and this is an important one. Will the children be missing school? If so, how many days? What arrangements, if any, can be made to ensure that the children stay with the curriculum and not fall behind? If they are missing school, have the teachers or other educators offered any opinions about this issue? Are they supporting the proposed trip, opposing it? It is important to realize that the answers to these questions will likely differ from case to case. In case A, the children will be missing four days of school, but it's not an issue because they are both excellent students will have no issue catching up and the school says the trip is a great enriching experience for them. In case B, a child is missing three days of school but has special educational needs and his teacher is concerned that even three days away from the classroom might be a problem. So a judge might say yes to a trip in case A but no to a trip in case B, even though the parent in case B says fewer school days will be missed if the trip proceeds. At this point, you may be asking a very reasonable and basic question. How do family court judges approach requests for permission to travel? The bottom line is the following. When it comes to any issue involving children, the court will apply the test of best interests. In other words, when facing an issue related to a child or children, the judge will ask him or herself, is what is being proposed in the child or children's best interests? And not surprisingly, Many people consider that question to be very nonspecific, airy-fairy, one might say, open-ended. What do best interests mean? Well, to begin with, the consideration of best interests is very contextual. That's how we describe it. In other words, the answer depends on the specific facts of each particular case and on the kids themselves. The answer to what is in the best interest of child A may be completely different than the answer to the same question for child B, because truly 
no two children are exactly alike, and no two families are exactly alike, whether intact or not intact, in other words, separated. When a judge faces a case in family court dealing with a child, and here I don't mean so much a case involving money, in other words, child support cases. I mean cases related to a child's health, welfare, education, travel, and so on. The judge will consider that particular child or children in their decision take their best interests into account. In the case of travel, as in all other issues involving children, the judge will always approach the proposed trip from the child's perspective. So it's not about what a parent wants or what their rights might be. It's always, always about the child or children and what is best for them. A parent who comes to court and says, I need to take this trip because it's the first one I've taken in the last two years. I've not been able to travel for a long time because of the pandemic. I'm worn out and need a break. If that is how the proposed trip is being pitched to family court, from the parent's perspective, he or she is not likely to get a sympathetic ear. If you go to a family law lawyer and say, I want to go to a family wedding in Texas, will the court let me go? The lawyer will be able to find earlier cases of family court judges who let a parent take kids with them to a family wedding in the U.S., but also cases where the trip was not approved. Again, the decision will depend on the specific circumstances of each case. Are there any patterns? Can we discern any overall principles? Or is this just a free-for-all? Yes. A review of the case law, decisions previously made by judges on the issue of travel, does give us some guidelines, no doubt about it. Here are ones I see. Number one, the proposed trip should disrupt the children's regular schedule as little as possible, and in particular their schooling. Number two, the benefits of the trip should outweigh the disadvantages. Here I mean there needs to be some evidence, for example, that bonding with extended family members in New Brunswick is worth the kids missing three days of school. That may sound obvious and intuitive to you, but in a specific case for a child with special needs, for example, it may not be. Number three, a parent who comes before the court with a solid plan has a much better chance of success than a parent who is flying by the seat of their pants. A parent who says, I have spoken to my child's teacher and this is how we will deal with the fact that Johnny will be missing four days of classes, a family court judge will definitely listen. 
A parent who says, I have checked with foreign affairs and there have been no travel advisories in connection with destination X, where I plan to travel in the last five years, a judge will definitely listen. A parent who says, this proposed trip is not part of the regular parenting schedule. The other parent will be missing their time with the children, but this is how I propose to address that. This is the makeup time they will have. A family court will definitely listen. And when I say definitely listen, I am not saying that it's a slam dunk and the judge will definitely agree. It's a balancing act. But the more times you get a judge to pay attention, the more likely your chances of success overall. Number four, for a family court judge, the question of whether to permit a trip is a balancing act, weighing the pros and cons, again, from a child's perspective. Earlier, I had talked about giving yourself enough runway, enough time to tackle any issues related to a proposed trip and hopefully resolve them. You will need a lot of runway if a family court judge has to resolve the issue of the trip. Do not leave it until the last minute. You are being unrealistic if you think a judge can consider your request for permission to make the trip overnight. That simply doesn't happen particularly during the pandemic. If you are going to ask the court to become involved, your lawyer will have to bring a motion and detailed affidavit material will have to be put together, your story under oath. The other side then gets to respond. This does not happen overnight. I hope my overview has given you some takeaways and importantly, that it's highlighted for you the importance of tackling proposed trips early, particularly those out of the country. Never think of this as your right to take a trip with your kids. It's not a wise approach because that is not how a court would approach the question of whether to let you go if the other parent doesn't agree. Above all, I encourage you to have a dialogue with the other parent about the trip. And early. Try family mediation, if at all possible. Trust me when I say that coming to an agreement in that context, in family mediation, will be a lot cheaper than having the issue decided on by family court. Save travels. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.